Welcome back to the official Sasta podcast. I'm your host, Harry Stebbings of the 20 Minute BC, and you can find me on Snapchat at hstebbings. And Sasta itself is brought to you by the godfather of Sass himself, Jason Lemkin, at JasonLK on Twitter. Now, for the show today, I'm thrilled to welcome Jim Stoneham. Jim is the VP of Infrastructure Products at New Relic, and Jim joined New Relic when the company acquired Opsmatic, where he was co founder and CEO. And prior to Opsmatic, Jim was CEO of Pavement, a social commerce platform for SMB sellers that was acquired by Intuit in early 2013. He joined Pavement from Yahoo, where he led communities such as Flickr, Answers, Groups, Delicious, as well as the integrations of Facebook and Twitter into Yahoo products. And prior to that, he spent several years building consumer products at Kodak and Apple. An incredible interview with Jim today, and such a pleasure to record. And a huge thanks to Cindy Padnos at Illuminate for making the introduction, without which the interview could not have happened. But for now, it's enough from me, so I'm delighted to hand over to the incredible Jim Stoneham at New Relic. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Jim, absolutely fantastic to have you on the official Sasta podcast. Huge thank you to Cindy at Illuminate for making the introduction, and to you, Jim, for joining me today. Thanks for coming. Oh, thanks for having me, Harry. I appreciate it. Now, I'd love to get the ball rolling today and discuss how you made your way into the world of Sass and how you came to be VP of product at New Relic. Well, that's a long, uh, long discussion. Um, so kind of quickly, I've been involved in building and running internet services for quite a few years, um, <clears throat> kind of back at the dawn of the internet, working with kind of the early photo.com kind of startups around photo sharing and uh, made my way into Yahoo and ran communities there, products like Flickr and Yahoo Answers. So, you know, very large scale internet services. Uh, and then from there, I went in to build uh, very much a SaaS service oriented around social commerce to help folks sell products on uh, Facebook and Twitter and sold that to into it actually and thought i would take a break <laughs> but ran, ran into uh a guy i had stayed in touch with uh who i'd worked with at Flickr, a very brilliant technologist uh, my co-founder uh, mikhail penchenko and we were just sitting talking having a coffee and i'd been lamenting about the challenges i'd had working with agile releases and moving quickly and kind of the, the toll it was taking on my operations teams in terms of the, in terms of the rapid change and he was kind of dealing with the same kinds of issues so we the kind of spark for opsmatic started at that point and we you know we, we started the company to really help ops and devops teams move much quicker and have better insight into what's going on in their infrastructure so it didn't really take a break <laughs> so we started the, we started the company in early 2013 we're cranking away and building the business over about two and a half year period and had the the good fortune to run into New Relic as actually a customer. They were evaluating our, our service. Um, and very much independently, we had an entree from another large company interested in potentially acquiring the company, which began a process of talking to a number of companies. But ultimately, we made a very strong connection with Lou Cerny, the, the CEO of, of New Relic. I don't know if you've met him or not, but he's a fantastic guy. He's very much a product product first, first CEO. He's still writes code pretty much every day, um, very involved in products. And we were really, really impressed with the culture at the company, the focus on product, the focus on customer problems. The company was in high growth mode, but still was being pretty thoughtful about how it scaled and how it focused on customers. So we ultimately, we decided uh, New Relic was the best place for us. We really weren't looking to you know, be, be bought out or you know, kind of join another company, but uh, the opportunity to work with this kind of world-class team really kind of sealed it for us. So that's how it came to be at New Relic. And obviously, kind of the acquisition by New Relic came about uh, because of the incredible work by the team at, at Opsmatic. So, so talk to me about that and how you built the agile and, and high-performing team that you did, and, and what elements worked and what didn't from from those testings. 
Yeah, we weren't a huge team at acquisition. We, we you know we obviously started small, um, but from pretty much day one, our our focus was on building and shipping things as quickly as we could. So we we started the company, and within like four months, I think we had initial proof of concept out there, and we we're starting to work with customers. And I think you know the, the, kind of the two things were always releasing, always shipping code and also working very closely with real customers as early and as often as we could. And that, you know, it just energizes the team, right? When you're, when you're actually solving customer problems, you're hearing from them kind of if it's working or not, what's, what's, what they like and what they don't like. It just creates this nice flywheel effect where the team is very motivated to kind of keep fixing, keep improving, try new things. So a lot of the kind of agility and performance came from customers kind of pulling, you know, like liking what they saw and wanting more or asking us if we could do this. And it was really crucial to kind of our, you know, kind of velocity in the early days. And, and it, you know, it created an environment where people wanted to come work on the problem. So people would come in the door, they'd literally see kind of active conversations going on with customers, albeit like on a, on a screen, on a chat session or whatever. Um, we had customers come in and do what we called salons where they'd sit in couches with us and talk about their problems. And we'd actually... <laughs> We'd actually we'd actually build features kind of on the spot, which is pretty unusual. And it just you know it was a, it was a world where great technologists could do kind of build amazing things and see immediate impact from what their work was from their work essentially. Even in small companies, you don't always see that, right? So I think being very connected to customers during kind of our very early stages, alpha, beta, and then eventually launch um, was was critical to kind of the culture we built and the kind of velocity of the team as well. And I would also say we, I, I having done a few startups now and consulted with startups, I. I biased toward hiring pretty senior senior folk for the first initial founding team. Um, I love like fresh and new talent, but quite frankly, I want to have somebody who's made mistakes a few times <laughs> to join the team because they've 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 got the wisdom to kind of do things more efficiently. Do you find that they're happy to be the jack of all trades in the early days? If you get your VP of sales from a fantastic you know uh, established company, do you find that happy to go back to those grassroots and be the jack of all trades pre specialization? Well, the you know only. The the people who like that were the people who joined us, right? So there were certainly candidates we talked to who wanted to just be, they wanted to have a team, you know, they wanted to manage a team and drive success that way. And that's what they were used to. But we, we, you know, our skew is toward people who wanted to roll up their sleeves and kind of had a career of trying to stay engaged with the actual work instead of just kind of leading teams, um, but had the had the experience to grow into that role as we, we kind of grew the organization. So it was very much like, are you, do you love hands-on work? And that, that's usually pretty obvious, talking to people what they get excited about. You know, when you have a conversation with somebody, it, it becomes very clear that they love to roll up their sleeves and they're very involved. And when we see those people, those are the kind of folks we try to attract to the team. At what stage do you, t- do you attempt to hire the, the very young freshmen coming out of university with the passion and the enthusiasm to learn from those experienced ones that you've established in the core exec team is there is there a kind of when we reach 10 we've got enough bandwidth to start a mentorship program and, and teach yeah it's that's a really good question and i think the answer might be different you know kind of by team and by situation um for us we were at about i think we we're at about six to seven folks and it had to do with the candidate as well we had a, a phenomenal candidate coming over who actually had experience but uh in a different profession and was you know transitioning over to technology and she had maybe a year kind of experience at that time and we we knew that she would 
take some mentorship to be productive in the team, but she was kind of a unique opportunity because she had some work experience in the world as well. Cause as you, I mean, as you may know, like being successful is a combination of your inherent technical, technical or, or, or subject matter skills, but also your ability to work well on a team and collaborate with other people. Um, so I guess we, we kind of cheated. We, we picked somebody who had knew, had a lot of experience working in a team, but had very, you know, junior kind of technical chops basically. So I, but in general, you could assume, kind of a fresh faced person is going to be, you know, is going to consume about 20% of the person who's mentoring them initially. And you have to decide if you can afford that or not. And typically that doesn't happen. So you're, you know, close to a dozen people. Like you see, so you said 10 people somewhere in that range, I would say. Did you make any mistakes in the building out phase of, of Opsmatic and the scaling <laughs> of the team? Uh, we made plenty of mistakes. I'm sure, I'm sure but... <laughs> not, but say you did, hypothetically no, speaking. No, we made, we made plenty of mistakes, um, and certainly around hiring as well. We had, you know, the, the important thing I've found is to be able to realize mistakes and correct quickly. So we had a couple of hires that didn't work out, and, and fundamentally is we re- revised our hiring process, our interview process, to include a couple of things. The, the first thing we did is we basically had every candidate come in and actually present to the whole team for about a half an hour about themselves. And we want because we wanted to understand if they had a little bit of gravitas to be able to survive in a team that was very capable and prone to debate. <laughs> we didn't want any wallflowers. We wanted people who wanted to really kind of roll up their sleeves and dig in and get into the debate and arguments to build great products. So the starting point was a half hour discussion presenting to the team. Then kind of, and that also allowed us to get kind of the basics out of the way, you know, their background and things like that. Then deep dives one-on-one. And then, you know, there's a typically for technical folks, there was a coding challenge for non-technical folks. There were typically other challenges they had to fulfill. And then we also, at the end of the day, the key thing we did is we asked them to then pitch us back our product as if they were talking to a colleague or a sales prospect. We wanted to see that they had passion for the, the mission we were on um, because, you know, it doesn't always happen. You don't always find the right people who really are into your, your mission as a company. And I think our mistakes in hiring, we, we didn't do that kind of acid test of are they really passionate about the problems we're trying to solve? And once we started adding that little half half hour loop at the end to see how they pitched us back, it became very clear like who was a good fit for the team and who wasn't. And it was really amazing some of the some of the outputs of those sessions, like how engaged some folks got, like how they approached that problem of like essentially selling the proposition back. So it was really it was great for the team to have that experience as well. In, in terms of the onboarding there, say we have someone who pitches the product brilliantly well, they do them the pitch themselves brilliantly well. How does the onboarding i mean cindy cindy in particular told me that you you specialize in kind of onboarding well welcoming them to the team and helping them become more productive more quickly so how do you look to onboard effectively for new employees yeah, I mean, there's there's a, there's a couple different elements in that. I mean, even as a small company, we had <laughs> tactically a very deliberate checklist to make sure when they arrived, there was no friction in the process. So a new employee would arrive, they'd have their you know their laptop would be all set up, it would have the dev tools on it, all the passwords and all the things they needed to get into their systems and get moving were kind of already set up for them. Um, importantly, I would sit down with each person coming in and walk through our company strategy. And typically, I'd walk through the pitch deck we used for raising our seed round to give them a sense of kind of our history. Because, you know, as, as as companies evolve, sometimes the, their focus changes, but I wanted people to understand kind of where we come from and what we we're working on, where our focus was. And then typically they would spend about a day, you know, or the rest of the day with a mentor on the team 
making sure they were familiar with what was going on, kind of how the code was structured. And, and these are, I mean, these are all kind of standard things. But what I would also say is we built our whole platform on a microservices architecture, which makes it so much easier for a new contributor to come into the code base and build discrete services and tie into other services and other data flows. Um, we use Kafka, for example, which is a phenomenal uh, data platform for allowing you to kind of tie in, you know, subscribe to a, a topic on Kafka and take that data and do things with it and have services live alongside existing services. So we created an architecture fundamentally that allowed for experimentation and for new people to kind of get involved and not have to understand the entire system, but be able to be productive immediately. And I think that was really key to people joining the team and being effective uh, in a short period of time. You said there about welcoming the the person and kind of walking them through your seed deck. At what stage does that become unsustainable for you as as the founder and the CEO? When does that become too difficult to do and you have to hand it off to a line manager, say? Well, I like I like to reference uh, Donna Dubinsky, who was uh, who founded Handspring and was at Palm. She took the time to do that as they even got to be several hundred employees. And I, you know, I, I have not been in that situation myself where I had started a startup and got it to many hundreds of employees. But I will tell you that that's one of the most important things a CEO can do is make sure that we're bringing somebody, we, we bring somebody into the team, they really understand kind of what our mission is and why we're here. Because an aligned employee uh, is part of the team now and you're all pulling in the same direction. And the cost of, you know, a person on your team not being aligned is immense and it's a it's of a concern to anybody in senior the kind of senior leadership level so um while i haven't been there that line would have to be pretty high from my perspective you know even in new relic i will tell you that as we joined the company uh, admittedly through acquisition uh very senior execs were involved in making sure we understood kind of where we were arriving what kind of environment it was and i've become familiar with the onboarding process here at the company and the ceo and some of the other c-level execs are involved in all these onboarding experiences for employees so again the thing we love about this culture here is that there's a recognition that this is so important to getting somebody grounded and kind of rooted in the culture and focused on the mission of the company so i think i i wouldn't draw that line too high quite honestly and i'm pleased you said about culture there um one area of the team that was particularly strong for you was was the collaborative technical culture so so how did you nurture this you said about the kind of debating and competitive element but how did you nurture this and and harness it by by building tools and processes to support them yeah i I think you know there, there's many dimensions to this. I think one of the a couple of things to mention. One is we built for kind of a remote culture from day one because we had no idea where the best talent was going to come from. So we made sure that all of our tooling was built to support remote employees or frankly people who are just time shifted. Right? If we had a an issue occur at midnight or a discussion occur you know online at at three in the morning, we wanted to make sure that was visible to everybody. So we had, you know, we, we deployed Slack early on. We were one of the early users of Slack. Um, we used other chat tools before then. So all the conversations happened in chat. Um, we kept a pretty active wiki. We used GitHub quite a bit. So a lot of our tools allowed for kind of a, dis, you know, kind of time and space disconnected kind of culture, which we felt was really critical uh, for both remote employees and just our day-to-day interactions. So there were no secret conversations, basically. We would often have very intense in-person conversations you know, in, in the office, of course, uh, or, or folks remotely, we, we put a little bit of energy and not a lot of money into a, a cart that was a remote video conference system that had a high def camera and some great audio that was kind of uh, um, cobbled together from various pieces to optimize because many of the kind of remote video conference systems kind of do one thing well, but not everything well um and i've got a i've got a blog post on it if you're interested in seeing it um but it <laughs> basically I, I would i'd love to see it and i'll put it in the show notes too so everyone okay. else can see it too 
Oh, cool. Fair enough. Um, so there's a couple of things we built that helped us be more successful. And, and this, this video conference rig on wheels was very helpful with a high def camera for, for our remote folks or folks who just feel like we're sick and at home or couldn't come in or whatever. So we made sure those intense conversations were shared experiences. We did a lot of documentation online. And then as we built the product, you know, we had very peer level coding practices. So all, you know, using GitHub, all pull requests were reviewed by somebody else. So no code got committed that hadn't been looked at by another human being, basically. So it, it drove, again, more discussion and collaboration around our technology we're building. Um, and then we also, you know, we we're fortunate to start the company in the, the Soma area of, of San Francisco, where literally you go out to get lunch and walking down the street, you're going to run into somebody you might have worked with before. So we, we kind of extended our collaboration outside of the team. And I mentioned customers earlier about how involved some of our earlier customers were, but there are also a couple of advisors who helped us out and also just people we'd worked with before who we'd literally walk into on the street and say, hey, we're having this issue with this. What do you think? So we were really fortunate to be starting this company in a place where there's such a vibrant kind of ecosystem. So it, it was not just within kind of within our figurative walls, it was outside of our walls as well. You said there about kind of expecting the workforce to potentially be decentralized with the highest quality, not always being in a concentrated location. <laughs> Did it turn out like that or was it actually quite a concentrated workforce? We had basically two remote employees uh, through our life. Uh, so, it, it, you know, it varied and it, it's always a tension when you have a small team, but we, we did have a couple of unique individuals who were remote. Um, so that would have been, you know, a small percentage of the team. But uh, the point is we had the flexibility to evaluate candidates who were not local. To have that freedom was very important as we were like building our team. Do you think founders should have that uh, mental agility to hire well outside their geographical region if it's the best talent, even if they may not be able to work in the office? Yeah, I, I agree. I think I think absolutely yes. I think given the collaborative technologies we have at our fingertips these days, with the right person, of course, there's no reason not to work with folks who are remote. I emphasize the right person because some people just don't know how to do that. Like we've we've seen people who have always worked within an office and then take a remote job and fail miserably because they don't understand what it means to work remote um, in terms of being engaged with the team and being available online. But with the right person, it works incredibly well, and it's important when you're building a team to have that flexibility for sure. And I'd love to dive into we normally call it 60 seconds aster but cindy uh from illuminate gave us so many questions that we decided to call it cindy's 60 seconds aster um, <laughs> and then she can at least have some ownership of it so let's do the biggest takeaway from the opsmatic journey for you i guess i'd have to say the biggest takeaway is that your initial founding team is just so important right the thing i noticed they, they call it kind of getting in the flow when things just naturally happen for quite a bit of our life we had a small core founding team where we all trusted each other, we knew what to expect from each other, and we we had literally had nonverbal communication to allow us to kind of interact with each other because we became so adept at understanding like who who we could trust to do what. So I think having a, a strong founding team that importantly you have trust in is so critical. Um, it was critical to our success and critical, I think, for any small company. The most useful thing your investors did to help you and your team, uh, maybe what Cindy did, maybe she's uh, looking for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Cindy was Cindy was one of the very act. act involved investors. Uh, she, one of her benefits she brings to her investments is she commits absolutely to be involved and be helpful in a way that's not always true for every investor. So it's it's something I really enjoy about working with her. Um, I think one of the big things that she and a couple of other investors did is really make really meaningful intros to kind of key customers uh, and potential partners as we're building the service and scaling the service. I mean, when you, when you think about kind of what an investor can offer, it's typically, you know, it's network, both for customers, partners, and potentially employees. It's also wisdom. And I think she brought both of those things 
things to the party with her experience on the uh, kind of on the SaaS side as well. So both both the intros and the SaaS advice was really helpful to us, you know, building out the, the business. What's your favorite SaaS reading material? <laughs> uh, okay, I'm not I'm not kissing up, but that, that I get the Saster newsletter pretty often. I read that. Um, have, I, have I told you you're my favorite guest, Jim? <laughs> Um, I also I also follow Thomas Tungas from uh, Redpoint. He's very prolific uh, with his blog, and he does an excellent job of doing like data driven analyses of things that affect uh, SaaS style businesses. And I'm actually I'm in the middle. It took me a while to get to it, but I'm actually reading Behind the Cloud by Benioff right now, which is pretty pretty fascinating as well. So that's the current stuff. That's on my to-do list. Okay, another one here. Why is it important having the team cook breakfast for one another? <laughs> you might want some context for this, but um, I, I think I do actually. Yeah. So we were we were fortunate to have office spaces uh, that had some cooking facilities uh, through most of our life as a company, and and pretty much from day one, we made a, a conscious decision to have every Friday morning we would plan our next week's sprint, basically the next week of work, and we did it you know, over breakfast, basically. So we wanted to create a kind of social environment and build kind of connection with each other. And, but importantly, I wanted everybody in the team. So we took turns basically cooking breakfast for each other. So we got to see everyone's culinary skills. Some people would bring in burritos from a local place. Some people would literally whip up quiches and uh, English muffins that are homemade and pancakes and waffles and all sorts of stuff. But the point of it was to really have community, but also to remind each other we were on that team in service to each other. So literally serving each other food was part of reminding us that we're all kind of dependent on each other to be successful as a team and then the best startup office decorating tip on a shoestring budget (laughs) i'll send you a link to this blog as well so the office we spent the most time in was a warehouse style space that had really horrible lighting and if you're looking at a computer screen all day you want to have you know good quality like ambient soft lighting and so my office decorating tip is buy photo umbrellas uh the kind of white umbrellas that uh, photographers used for softening flashes and and, uh, lights they make great uh, diffusers for uh for lighting fixtures that's gonna be on all founders wish list now um (laughs) and 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 then i want to finish today now this isn't a quick fire so don't worry about the 60 seconds but i do want to finish on the topic of uh, product and deployment cycles we, we mentioned it earlier and how using iterative development and measurement of customer interactions can can really build better products so what have been the, the big learnings and how you assess this today with new relic yeah so I, you know i mentioned this earlier in the conversation that we very very early on in our development wanted to get things in front of customers and I just think it's, you know, it's like crack for your engineers if they can kind of get 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 immediate feedback as they're building things. So, and it keeps everybody honest, right? We still pretty much, well, absolutely still uh, drive toward how quickly can we iterate? How can we take this big feature we're planning and break it into very small batch sizes and get a little piece of it out at a time so that there's continuous feedback throughout the the process of kind of building like a big feature, for example. And I mean, to wit, as, as Opsmatic and here now at Relic, we've got literally in the UI a sandboxer we can add discrete kind of UI pages that literally takes up the same data, look at it in a different way, present it in a different way to the customer. Everything we build is kind of API-driven and pluggable. So we've kind of built the architecture to allow for this experimentation, pushing people to do small batch sizes. And then also the, there's a thing written on my whiteboard behind me right now that says, basically, if you can't measure it, don't ship it. So the other piece of it is making sure that you can actually instrument and, and understand quantitatively like how something's working, how it's being clicked, how it's being used. So these techniques like make us much better at building better products for customer and keep people focused on like what really matters which is what are the metrics that are driving the business with with such iterative and short deployment cycles is it difficult to retain focus we we box that with checking in on the longer term 
goals as well. So, so focus, I mean, focus is no problem when you're doing iteration because you're very focused on the next thing you're pushing out. I think maybe what you're getting at is how do you keep connected to the longer term vision and like the roadmap you've laid out for yourself. And yeah, you know, as Opsmatic and today inside of New Relic, every month we basically sit down as leaders in the team and look a month, look, actually look 90 days forward. We're always looking kind of 90 days forward once a month to see, you know, are we on the right track? Are we getting to the objectives we set out for ourselves? That's kind of the, the kind of bookend to the whole process, right? So we're always checking in on our 90 day plan and then balancing that with these small batch iterations. And those two things kind of keep everybody connected to the vision, but also like focusing on the near term deliverables. And that works pretty well. Well, Jim, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for joining me and revealing the Opsmatics journey and the future ahead with New Relic. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for talking to me here. I appreciate that too. And I want to say again, Jim was the nicest and most genuine chap to have on the show today and such an excellent discussion. A huge thank you to him for giving up his time to be on the show and a huge hand to Cindy Padnos at Illuminate for all she's done and for making the intro to Jim today. And if you're loving everything Sasta and would like to stay in the world of Sasta, then you can follow me on Snapchat at H Stebbings or you can follow Jim on Twitter at Jim Stonham or you can follow the main man, Mr. Lemkin, on Twitter at Jason LK. As always, we so appreciate all your support and cannot wait to bring you Monday's episode with Tim Kopp at Hyde Park Venture Partners.